Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We are back with another research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, we are going to cover a sport near and dear to my heart, cross-country running. I have two experts on my podcast today to cover three articles in the world of running. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today, I mentioned I have two of them. The first is Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt, and he is the Frederick Ganselin Professor in Orthopedics in the Departments of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He also serves as the Director of the UW Health Runners Clinic, the Director of Research for Badger Athletic Performance with UW Athletics, and is Co-Director of the UW Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory. Dr. Heiderscheidt research is aimed at understanding and enhancing the clinical management of orthopedic conditions with a particular focus on sports-related injuries. He is editor of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy and research chair for the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy. Dr. Stephanie Cleithermis is the research director for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison as well. As AMSSM research director, she oversees and advances the research initiatives of AMSSM, including the Collaborative Research Network. With her PhD in biostatistics, Dr. Cleithermis research focused on the application of statistical methodology and design to sports medicine. Dr. Cleithermis has particular research interest in youth sports specialization, running biomechanics, and injury risk in athletes. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cleithermis and Dr. Heiderscheidt. Hey, Mark. Thanks Hi for having us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, joining, joining us all together, it's all good. Glad to have you guys together. And uh, since we got another part of kind of Wisconsin cohort, everybody knows I'm a Wisconsin grad, so I, I like to bring my Wisconsin peeps into these things here. <laughs> Tonight is the night that we are hoping that the Bucks will take it in six. So we will see when this all comes out, if that actually truly happened or not. I am hopeful. Otherwise, you will have a very disappointed podcast host later tonight. But we're going to start off with the article from Dr. Ashley Marshall. It's called Characteristics of Injuries Occurring During Cross-Country, a report from the Athletic Training Practice-Based Research Network. And this was published in the Journal of Athletic Training in December of 2020. Some background on the study. This was a cross-sectional study. Cases were included if an injury occurred during cross-country participation. Care was provided by an on-site athletic trainer, and the data was collected through the Athletic Training Practice-Based Research Network. And this is 104 clinical sites uh, spread over 22 states. And this was collected through a 10-year stretch from 2009 to 2019. Demographics, injury evaluation, treatment, and discharge from injury were defined by the condition diagnosed by the athletic trainer. Time loss for injuries was defined as a reduced participation level of at least 24 hours. No time loss injury was reduced participation less than 24 hours. I'm going to summarize some of these findings. So since this is an epidemiological study, we'll go through what exactly was found and, and some of the basic stats of this. So there were 681 cases that were reviewed. About 70% of them were non-time loss, and it was almost equally split between females and males as far as the number of the males were slightly more. The majority of injuries were in-season practices, as we would kind of expect for most of cross-country. So since most of their time pounding on the pavement or the track is going to be typically 
um, during practice time. So again, that was about 68.2% female, 66.2% male. A second highest number of injuries occurred through in-season meets, and that was about 14 to 15% between females and males for incidents there. The most commonly injured area of the body they found was the knee, which was 21.4%, followed by the ankle at 20.4%, and then the calf at 17.5%, which does make a lot of sense for us as we would expect lower extremity issues to be the rule here. I found it interesting as a concussion specialist that there were nine concussions in the group, so I'd be really curious how these happen through cross-country or if these were injuries that happen outside of cross-country, because I don't typically think of cross-country as a high concussion risk sport. And also, interestingly, stress fractures only accounted for 4.7% of all injuries. And we can kind of discuss that as a group as far as some possibilities why that may be. In general, pain was 9.5%. And there was no distinct category for patellofemoral pain, which I also find a little bit interesting just in the standpoint it may be kind of how they categorize these, as we do tend to see a high amount of patellofemoral pain in that high school age group from running. In terms of what services were administered, and this was, again, looking at athletic training services, about 28.7% were therapeutic activities or exercises. Another 26.1% was a simple hot or cold pack. And then 23.4% were as an actual athletic training evaluation or reevaluation. So they counted that as part of the services, just an evaluation or assessment or another reevaluation. As we would kind of expect here, the non-time loss injuries, so those were the ones that were less than 24 hours, accounted for about two-thirds of the athletic training services received. And and again, that makes a lot of sense because if it's a non-time loss injury, we would expect those to be something simply managed by the athletic trainer, maybe not referred out to a physician. And then the average duration of care for all cases was big range here, 5.5, and there was a plus or minus 15.1 episodes of care. And then there was a big wide range here as far as the duration of treatment, which was 27.8 plus or minus 87.5 days. So a big broad range there. Kind of to summarize things, this is the first study that's reported to describe injury and treatment characteristics of cross-country injuries in adolescents and the athletic trainer services workload for these injuries. One of the areas that was discussed, and I'd love to get both of your takes on this in light of the study you will present later, was they made a a statement in here that gait retraining was done very infrequently by ATs, which I would kind of expect, and that should be something incorporated into injury rehab protocols by ATs. So to start off with, what are each of your thoughts about the need for this? And and personally, I feel that there's something such as gait retraining is done. It's it's probably going to be logistically difficult in high school, especially as a fall sport for cross country. If anybody's been around an athletic training room in the fall, it is a madhouse. And most athletic trainers being a single athletic trainer at the school, they're running around like chickens with their head cut off and football kind of dominates for most of the treatments in that part. So I, I, I find that an interesting kind of statement to make in as far as the logistics, but kind of your thoughts, either of you. Yeah, I would agree with that, Mark. I think, you know, to try to jump into get retraining at, the, at one at this level, and then two, like you mentioned, and that sort of a, of a of a busy environment is really challenging. You know, as we know with gait retraining, even in the, under the best of circumstances and with a, a population who's really in tune with their body and compliant to the process, it's not a one and done, right? This is something that takes a number of, of visits and sessions to reinforce it and to fine tune it. To try to do any sort of generic prescription of gait retraining is extremely challenging and really in the end, oftentimes doesn't hold up. That even doesn't even get to the point of knowing when we really should be doing gait retraining. And as you probably know, I mean, I'm an advocate for gait retraining under the right circumstances. And not all injuries necessarily require gait retraining. So having an understanding of what their pre-injury mechanics look like or making sure that when we do see their running mechanics post-injury after a bigger injury, like, for example, a stress fracture, 
we're really targeting the mechanics that may have contributed to that original injury. Now, we don't necessarily directly know cause and effect, but we at least know certain mechanics that are going to increase biomechanical load to certain areas. And so that becomes the target of our gait retraining. When we do that, it really needs to be a, a fairly elaborate evaluation and an analysis followed up by a, usually a series of visits to get to the point. Yeah, I think I will leave that question to the expert. But I think one thing that I, I would say is, and this is more anecdotally from my experience as a, a high school runner and athlete, is that there's really a need in this sport, just like there are in team sports, to focus on the fundamentals, not so much directed towards athletic trainers, but in coaches and the athletes themselves to, to focus on form drills. I think kids should be paying attention to form and technique is really important, even in the sport of running. I recall my high school days where we would spend... 20 minutes uh, at the beginning of every practice doing form drills. And that included our distance runners down to our 100 meter sprinters and our even our uh, field athletes would be doing the same thing. So I think that that's, if you're not going to be focused on gait training, and I completely agree with what both you and Brian are saying, I think one thing that you can do is really focus and teach the, the kids appropriate form for, for running. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And, and I think something that probably gets missed a lot. I, I, you know, a lot of times we can we can try and dissect cross country and it's, well, you just go out and run and just put in your miles and that's all you really need to do. But that's missing the point as far as making sure that form is good, making sure that we have the adequate strength for things. And, and, and that's where we are, we're going to hopefully keep these kids out of our offices and things like that for assessments and injuries because of the fact that we're addressing those things proactively. But it's not as exciting to do that in a cross country mm-hmm. practice than it is to just go out there and, and get some miles in. I think it would be interesting also, and this is always a little challenge when we look at an athletic training diagnosed study, if we correlated what they found and what they call their diagnoses to see if we're truly on the right track with, with what a physician may see. You know, I, I do tend to see a lot of my office of diagnosis of tendonitis that turns out to be something else. One, one common thing that I see that sometimes gets overlooked and comes into me as peroneal tendonitis, and it's actually it turns out to be a fibular stress fracture, patellar tendonitis, that's patellofemoral pain hip flexor tendonitis that may be something like as bad as a femoral neck stress fracture or an apophysitis of the pelvis. You know, it's not meant to discount any of the diagnostic capabilities of ATs, but but again, we, we have our toolbox and we know what stuff we can easily assess in those situations. And again, frankly, it, it's hard to get through a full training room of athletes and necessarily do a full assessment on everybody. And, and you know, we know, honestly, high school athletes don't always disclose everything of how bad something may hurt as they're, they want to get out there and they want to keep participating and they don't want to necessarily let on what may be going on. In the big picture things, I'd be curious if those injuries that were managed by the AT, at what point of the season some of these also occurred. I could see more non-time loss injuries because an athlete may not want to miss out the end of the season. They may, again, may not fully disclose the extent of their problem. So we can see that as well. And, you know, my office, typically those first few weeks after a, a season ends, whether it's fall, winter, or spring sports is, is usually loaded with kids who have been just been kind of managing through their injury as much as they can because they didn't want to stop. They did acknowledge limitations in their study as, uh, you know, distinguishing in their system, the diagnosis of shin splints. It was grouped into tendinopathy, which just seems like a little odd kind of grouping there. And they couldn't break down sprain or strain individually, which is a big distinction because we're talking about a ligamentous injury versus a muscular injury. And those could be two different expectations for management and recovery. So I think that was a, a big limitation there. 
But overall, you know, it's an interesting study. It adds some additional epidemiologic data to the cross-country world, and it provides some evidence for the value of ATs, which I think is always important, because I think, unfortunately, ATs are always fighting this uphill battle, justifying their existence, so to speak. And I think this is certainly something that can lend that to the sport of cross-country, and certainly something that would be helpful for other sports if they did it as far as what values AT bring to the school. But either of you, any additional thoughts or comments about this particular study? Yeah, just one other piece to it, like you mentioned, Mark. I think one of the real advantages to this study is that it shows the number of injuries that the athletic trainers need to deal with related to cross country in the fall. And as you mentioned, this is oftentimes a secondary sport in the fall for the high schools where football may be the priority. So you've got this large football team that requires a tremendous amount of attention. And typically you're going to have a large cross country team, both male and female to deal with as well, who also needs a quite a bit of attention based on the epidemiology here. I mean, it, it's hard to fathom a single AT at a larger high school being able to handle all of that and handle it well, right? It's a lot of time that they've got to deal with these issues. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think the other part of that too is just also acknowledging the fact, you know, I, I get a lot of parents that come into my office and, and basically say, yeah, we didn't really go see the athletic trainer because we don't know that they know very much. And, you know, that that kind of the trainer, what what's the trainer do kind of thing. And this just goes to show you when you're looking at a fall sport and, and the breadth of the injury kind of diagnosis spectrum that we were seeing in this study and then you you throw that onto football, which is pretty much for the most part all acute injuries as opposed to the overuse injuries we see in cross country. And just that knowledge base and having to have that spectrum of knowing all those different types of things and how to manage that and, and how much the athletic trainer does bring value to the school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think this does a great job of giving you the distributions of the different types of injuries that we see in high school athletes. And unfortunately, with this type of epidemiological study design, we don't get to know the training volume or the athletic exposure of these athletes, so the duration or intensity of their training. And I think that's just hard and hard in general to capture in runners, but it would be really valuable to learn more about the, what predisposes them to certain types types of injuries as it relates to their their training volume. And temporally, as well as you brought up, Mark, I think you anecdotally said you see a lot of these athletes at the end of the season, but I wonder if you could also see some some overuse injuries at the beginning of the season, especially, you know, like we've, we've seen with COVID after time off, after they take their summers off or don't run a high volume, and then all of a sudden are jumping into cross country training. It'd be really interesting to have a better sense of temporally when these injuries occur and what types of injuries occur. Oh yeah, and I and I I definitely would say that there there's a big kind of bell curve as far as when we wind up seeing athletes. It's it's the first couple of weeks after they've started stuff, and usually these are the ones that didn't do any summer running, mm -hmm. and now they're thrown into you know six days a week of running training, and their body's just like no, no I'm not ready for this yet. And then that end of the season rush, and then there's there's that big lull right around where all the major competitions happen because. God forbid they come into the doctor's office to help them manage their injury and get them through those things. It would be because their big fear is that we're going to say that, no, they can't participate. So, so it's those two big rushes that we see. So yeah, we see a lot at the beginning too, and then maybe a little smattering in the middle if it's just too hard for them to run. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, next we're going to discuss the article by Dr. Mitchell Rao. It's called Sports Specialization in Low Bone Mineral Density in Female High School Distance Runners. This was also published in the same issue of Journal Athletic Training in December 2020. Brian, can you summarize this study a little bit for us? 
I'll give it a go, probably not nearly as eloquently as you did yours, but uh, I'll give it a try. And I've had to be careful because I, I'm personal friends with a few of the authors on this one, so I don't <laughs> want them coming back at me later on. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but good, good paper overall. So as you mentioned, this is the overall topic of the study is looking at sports specialization and its association with, with bone mineral density in female high, cross, high school cross-country runners. Of note with this particular study, this is a, a subset of data from a much larger data set that was captured back in 2003-2004. The participants were aged 13 to 18 years, had reached menarche, and were not on medication, including hormonal contraceptives that might influence menstrual status. They acquired aerial bone mineral density at the spine, also at the total hip, and using a femoral neck scan, as well as the whole body scan, all assessed using the GE lunar dexter systems. The runners were then categorized as having low bone mineral density for their age. If their BMDZ score was less than 1.0 at the spine or the whole body, being normalized to age match sex-specific reference data from the GE lunar pediatric database. And in this study, again, each distance runner was placed in one of three sports specialization classifications that was determined through surveying. And these classifications were slight deviations from other publications that utilize a system similar to this, but they define low specialization as participation in distance running, which includes cross-country, track, and field, or both, for less than or equal to eight months per year, and participation in one or more other high school sports, excluding cross-country or track and field. The second classification was moderate specialization, which was defined as participation in only distance running sports for less than or equal to eight months per year or participation in distance running sports greater than or equal to nine months per year and one or more other sports excluding cross-country track and field. Gets a little dense with the terminology, but I think it's important to be able to, to understand what how they're classifying each. And then third was the high specialization, which is defined as participation in distance running sports for greater or equal to nine months per year and no reported formal participation in any other sports. So with this study, what they found overall was that there was approximately 22% of participants with high sports specializers. About 38% were classified as moderate sports specializers and approximately 41% were low sports specializers. They identified that a low BMD, based again on the Z-score, as we determined earlier, was present in 23 of these runners, 23 of the 64 runners. Compared with low sports specializers, high sports specializers were five times more likely to have low BMD. And this was determined through an odds ratio of 5.42, with a fairly broad confidence interval associated with that. So their conclusion was that a high level of sports specialization in high school female distance runners may be associated with a heightened risk for low BMD. And on to state that this requires further investigation to determine if health concerns about low BMD exists in these adolescent female runners. I'm interested in each of your takes as far as their categorization of specialization, knowing that that's an interest of yours as well, Steph, as far as do you think that those were reasonable for the low, moderate, and high? I, I think they're pretty good. I think that kind of categorizes runners pretty well. 
Yeah, Mark, this paper really interested me because of my interest in specialization as well as running. And I think one thing we know in the field of sports specialization research is how hard it is to really classify an individual and their level of specialization. And this kind of traditional classification system of low, moderate, high came from one of our colleagues, Niru Jayanthi, who's at Emory. It has given us a really great start to try and put these kids on a spectrum, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And there's been some studies suggesting some misclassification. And so I think they certainly did what they could with running. And we're seeing that there's a difference when you think about specialization in team sport athletes versus individual sport athletes. And they may need different criteria to really adequately identify a specialized athlete. And so I think that's what these researchers were really trying to get at is how can we really classify runners as specialized, which may look different than a team sport athlete. So I think what they put together is reasonable. This is the first time I've seen this classification of specialization in runners, but would be really interested in kind of further exploring really whether or not there's misclassification or are we accurately identifying an athlete's specialization status. I think the other thing that was interesting and a little intriguing to me with this study is because it was done in California, I think this research study has a little bit more of the Hispanic and Latina population, which I was a little intrigued about because, you know, we don't tend to hear as much about that in some of these research studies with that. I was kind of curious how that was going to pan out just looking at the statistics here, if there was any differences just from from a race standpoint, as far as the sports specializers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just looking at the kind of basic t- statistics, if we look at the Hispanics in this particular group, they were percentage wise, just from numbers, six out of 20 were high specializers as opposed to seven out of 31 for white. So I'm a little curious as far as just socially there. And but I, I was kind of curious about that because I saw that wasn't really kind of talked about, or we don't get to see that very much in other research studies. Well, I think what, just a follow-up to that point as well, you know, the fact that they're defining their low BMD based upon Z-scores from age-matched sex reference values out of the GE system, my understanding is that that is fairly limited with, with certain ethnic groups within that data set, number one. And then number two, when we're dealing with individuals who may have a lower body mass, as you would expect for a lot of high school runners in general, that there may not be a very robust reference data set for that purpose. Hmm. So I am also curious at how valuable using those Z-scores are mm-hmm. when the, the reference values may not be as robust as we'd want them to be. Yeah, it's a good point. That's a very good point with this. I'm curious just from a statistical analysis standpoint of the two models that they had there where they had the factoring in menstrual history in the second model as opposed to not in model one of, do you think either you think that has any Does that lend any additional information for this study as far as trying to tease out what their conclusions were? Yeah, I think it does, certainly, Mark. They first looked at the association between sports specialization and low BMD without adjusting for menstrual status or menstrual function dysfunction, but they did adjust for BMI and, and gynecological age. And then for the second model, they added menstrual status in there, menstrual dysfunction, and they really got similar results in both models. Certainly, as you add more variables to a model, you're going to lose power to identify associations. But what I think is kind of key in, in comparing those two models, they did not see when they added in 
menstrual status into that second model. They did not find an association between high levels of sports specialization and low BMD, but they did say they identified a trend. So they they found a p-value that was close to reaching that 0.05 significance level, but not quite there. And so what we didn't see in this article that I would have liked to see was the association between sports specialization and menstrual dysfunction, because I kind of I hypothesize that maybe menstrual dysfunction is serving as a confounding factor between that association between sports specialization and low BMD. And so we saw them look at the association between menstrual status and low BMD, but not necessarily sports specialization and menstrual dysfunction or menstrual status. So I think I would have liked to see that component of it to really assess whether or not this is actually a confounding variable in that association between sports specialization and low BMD. But maybe to back up maybe one step and even bring in a little bit from the last article, I think these researchers actually hypothesize a really interesting mechanism for that association between sports specialization and injury that they kind of talked about in their introduction. And we know that sports specialization, we have seen that over and over that it's associated with overuse injury. And they're really hypothesizing this mechanism of low BMD or low energy availability in the female athlete triad as potentially a mediating factor in explaining that association. And that hasn't necessarily been looked at. So it'd be interesting then as a next step for this study for them to really get an injury outcome and see if they can identify these variables such as the components of the triad as mediating factors in that association. As always with any research article, it always leads to more questions. It right? does. <laughs> it does. You know, before we kind of see what how how can we apply this as far as this article, like what do we where do we go from here? Any other take home points or other issues with the article, questions about the article, statements about the article that either of you have? I would just say in terms of the specialization percentages, that kind of intrigued me because, again, thinking about California, where it may be easier to run year round, uh, the, those percentages are really consistent with what we've seen in other sports in terms of sports specialization, with about 20% of their athletes being highly specialized and then a fairly equal split among the rest in moderate and low specialization. So I was I wasn't necessarily surprised by that, but I found that, that that kind of distribution of specialization to be really interesting, even given their new definition or their, their proposed definition of specialization. Oh, come on, Steph. I mean, we're, you've lived up in, in the North long <laughs> enough now. You know we just need to put on a couple more clothes there, Well, eh? yes. <laughs> yes. But I think we're a rare breed, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, I have remember fondly running my cross-country meets where there was snow in shorts. Yep. Um, that, yeah. It's, it, that was fun. Uh, anything from you, Brian? No, no, not at all. I think it, I think Steph summarized things quite well. You know, where do we go from here? We know most runners do track and cross country or are often doing winter and summer running with little breaks if they're not participating in another sport. We know that many cross country and track athletes, they're maybe not a sport in the wintertime that really intrigues them. So should we consider stronger recommendations based on this study's findings against that practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, this is a, 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 the beginnings, I think, of it. I get a little worried to make too many, many generalizations from the, you know, given the, the, the sample size that we're dealing with, uh, with this particular one uh, to say, you know, how does this influence our recommendations? But I think it's at least something that we need to be aware of. And, and frankly, I think a lot of us were, were aware of it already to some extent, that this is something that we need to be just keep a tabs on, just given how much demands that if you are a high sport specializer with a sport like cross country, that even if you're not specializing in that sport, there's still that 
that energy availability uh, issue that oftentimes comes up, that is at least something we need to be aware of and making sure that it's on our radar. And I think for many of us, it is already. Yeah, I would agree with Brian. I would say, you know, given that this is a, a cross-sectional study with a relatively small sample size, when you start breaking down the runners into the different specialization categories and then further breaking them down into energy availability and low BMD versus, you know, adequate BMD, I think the numbers do get quite small. And so I, I very much view this as a hypothesis generating paper that really kind of, like Brian said, puts it on your radar, but I'm not sure that it's at the, we're at the point where we can make practice changing decisions based on it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our research review. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts... You know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back with Dr. Klee Thermos and Heiderscheidt, and we are reviewing several articles about running today. So finally, we will tackle the review and review the article from our guest today from the British Journal of Sports Medicine was published in 2021. It's called Lower Step Rate is Associated with Higher Risk of Bone Stress Injury, a Prospective Study of Collegiate Cross-Country Runners. So Stephanie, can you take our listeners about your interest in this particular topic and why you wanted to research this and then kind of summarize your findings for us? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm happy to do that. I would just maybe start personally and say as an endurance runner and as a data person, I certainly have interest in all things running and really enjoy digging into all the different types of data you can capture in the sport of running because there's a ton of it. That's certainly a personal interest and in, in the opportunity to work with Brian and his team and to talk running on a weekly basis is, is certainly a gift. But more broadly, as a, a sports medicine and sports science research team, I think we're often thinking about injury prevention and how we can keep our athletes healthy, especially our collegiate athletes here at UW. So after seeing an uptick in bone stress injuries in our collegiate runners over the past few years and knowing just the devastating impact that these types of injuries have on a runner's athletic season, I think this is a question we wanted to answer for quite some time. And it finally felt like we amassed enough injuries to try and begin exploring these associations and what might cause bone stress injuries or be associated with bone stress injuries. 
in terms of our paper, our, our primary objective was to determine if BMD and running biomechanics were prospectively associated with a bone stress injury. And the literature on both of these risk factors, biomechanic risk factors, as well as BMD, has been mixed. I think both of these are thought to influence injury risks, but studies have been limited by cross-sectional or retrospective designs, too few numbers, and, and really no studies have looked at these potential risk factors in combination in a prospective manner. And so that was uh, really the power of our data that we had and we wanted to leverage. So what we did is we took three years of prospectively collected data on our cross-country runners, and we routinely collect preseason gate testing data on them, and as well as DEXA scan data. And we looked to see if we could identify associations with BSIs through that calendar year. And we chose certain biomechanics variables that I'll defer to Brian on, but they're commonly used to assess an injured runner's mechanics and uh, are specifically targets for gait retraining that they use with their athletes. And so we were very cognizant of the, the biomechanics variables that we selected. And we defined a bone stress injury as essentially an MRI-confirmed stress fracture or stress reaction that occurred during that calendar year after their gait assessment as well as their DEXA. So after data cleaning and our final data set was kind of compiled, we had 54 unique athletes and those athletes had anywhere between one to three seasons of data or one to three years of data, depending on uh, the number of years they've been at the institution. And 60% of those athletes were females. And over the three-year period, we observed 32 bone stress injuries on 24 unique athletes. And so in any given year, that amounted to between 30 to 32% of athletes obtaining a stress fracture. So thinking back to that first paper where that number was, was small, this is quite a, a, quite a larger percentage of our athletes were obtaining stress fractures on that year-to-year basis. 25% of those bone stress injuries occurred in the sacrum, 22% were in the femur, and then 15% were in the tibia and fibula. And when we looked at kind of biomechanic associations with bone stress injury, univariably we identified a history of BSI as a primary risk factor for future BSI. And that surprised no one because it's very well known that a history of injury is often predictive of future injury. But we also found some interesting univariable associations with step rate and vertical ground reaction force impulse, as well as center of mass vertical excursion. But our primary conclusions really come from our multivariable model that adjusted for history of BSI as well as sex, which is also known to be associated with not only biomechanics and BMD, but also injury risk. And we found that our primary conclusion or our finding was that a one step per minute increase in step rate was associated with a 5% decrease in BSI risk after we adjusted for BMD, sex, and history of BSI. So a really small increase in an individual athlete's step rate could have a meaningful reduction in their BSI risk. We didn't find a significant association with BMD in our model, but I think it's an important to state that it was an important contributor to the model. And we have some thoughts as to why BMD in our study may not have come out as a significant predictor in this population. And I'm happy to talk more about that, given what we just discussed in the, in the last article. Maybe that's where I'll stop for now. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good summary. I've got a couple of quick questions for the non-biomechanists, meaning me uh, <laughs> and, and Steph. Can maybe, Brian, you, you want to explain to us the different things that you guys looked at in this, which was step rate, what that means, first of all, the foot inclination angle, and then average vertical loading rate, just so we have an idea and we're all on the same page of what those things actually mean. 
Sure. Well, I'll, I'll highlight a few of them anyway, because there's probably a, a good half a dozen or so that were in here. Step rate, as you mentioned, Mark, is probably one of our, our primary ones. And again, that's just the number of steps that occur per minute when you're running. So again, that number of strides, not a number of times one foot hits the ground, but how many times two feet or each of the feet hit the ground. So number of steps per minute. And then our, our kinematic variables were focused on the foot inclination angle, which is the angle of the foot relative to the ground at contact. The bigger the angle, you can think of that as a more steep heel strike pattern. An angle of zero would be akin to like a midfoot strike. And then a negative angle would be more associated with a toe strike or a forefoot landing. And then there's some other uh, variables. One an important one is the center of mass vertical excursion. And so when we modeled the, the whole body through our, our modeling system, you can determine the center of mass of the individual and see how much it moves up and down throughout the stride cycle. We included other measures like peak hip adduction during stance, which I think is fairly straightforward. And then another term people might not know is base of gait at mid stance. And base of gait is probably more commonly known as crossover. And so if you have a negative base of gait, you actually have crossed over. So it's measuring that medial lateral distance between contact and your center of mass. And then the remainder of our gait variables were force related. There are focus primarily on the vertical ground reaction force or some aspect of it. So whether that's the peak force, the overall peak, the, the impulse, which is the area under the curve that happens, the impact peak, that transient peak that uh, sometimes gets a lot of attention when it comes to, bo to bone stress injuries. And then another very common one, the average vertical loading rate, which is probably the one that's gotten the most attention with respect to bone stress injuries. And that's that slope uh, of the ground reaction force curve. So how quickly does that vertical ground reaction force rise during initial contact? So typically that we're talking about the first anywhere from 25 to 50, maybe 75 milliseconds after contact. So when we talk about step rate, can we use that term cadence interchangeably or no? I think so. I mean, sometimes you'll see stride rate pop in there with cadence, but I think more oftentimes than not, step rate and cadence are used interchangeably. And I'm going to come back because I'm going to ask you a question about cadence in a little <laughs> bit. What I found fascinating as I was looking through your study is the bone stress injuries that you guys found in this. And I was looking through this list and I'm like, this would not be my top five list that I would normally expect to see for most of the runners that come into my clinic. Because we always talk about tibia being number one and metatarsals and then fibrillar. You had a high rate of sacral stress fractures. Do you have any explanation why you saw these particular spectrum of stress injuries as opposed to some of the ones that are reported as being much more common? Yeah, I'm happy to jump on this one as well. I mean, I would say that we were a bit surprised as well, or I should say we were probably surprised three or four years ago when we started <laughs> to see more sacral stress fractures. And really, and why three to four years ago? It's not like anything changed in our training habits or we recruited different athletes. It's really when we started to take these types of measurements on our athletes more rigorously. And so we were tracking these more commonly. And when we started to talk with other universities and other high-level programs, this is many times the feedback that we got was that, yeah, they were seeing a much higher sacral stress fracture or bone stress injuries than I would expect in most populations. I mean, typically, right, you think of sacral as being this rare injury, the one that maybe happens once a, a year or so in your, in your practice. 
And admittedly, before I started working with the collegiate athletes, I think I probably saw a couple of sacral stress fractures over a 15-year period. I don't think it's necessarily specific to our athletes as much as it is to specific to this level of athlete with this volume of running that is more prone to this type of injury when we see these happen more commonly at the professional and at that elite level. I'm interested in as well as that too, because, you know, we may, we may, many of us may kind of push that aside. You have some low back pain in a runner that's not debilitating because, you know, some of the sacral stress fractures I've seen are, are pretty debilitating, but some of them are not. It may be something that we're just assuming that the low back pain that a runner gets, we're not thinking of stress fracture in our differential as high as we probably should. And that may be, it may be just be an overlooked injury. And I, you know, I, that's, as I teach all the residents and medical school students I have with me, when we have a runner with hip and groin pain, you better be thinking of femoral neck stress fractures high in your differential because that is the one you don't want to miss. But again, it's 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 one of those that you're only ready to see what you're ready to see kind of thing. And so I, I'd be curious too, if that would be something that we looked at a little bit more of runners with back pain of what the incidence of sacral stress fractures would be in that population. I'm I'm really intrigued by that. Yeah, I would agree. I think it is something that may be uh, not identified as often as it could. But interestingly, it it pops up on a physical exam pretty clearly when you're doing that, that single leg hop test, right, which is a very generic and obviously not specific to sacral stress injuries. And But it'll be very pinpoint localized uh, pain right over that spot. And I would say we've seen that positive on just about everyone that's come through the door in, the, in recent years. And Brian brings up a great point there, and that's a teaching point for those of you who are out there evaluating these athletes. I find tremendous value in the single leg hop test and looking for stress injuries for people in various spots, especially for the femoral neck. I, I, for that one, I, I tell, you know, if if that person gives you like the craziest look, like there's no way in hell I'm going to hop on this leg because that's going to cause me significant pain. That to me is a femoral neck stress fracture. Don't prove it otherwise, because <laughs> they give you that look like you've got to be joking. You're going to ask me to yeah. hop on this one leg. So once you start to see those things and you see that, especially in, in any body part, I mean, we see that in tibia, fibula, maybe not as much just because it's not as much of a weight bearing bone, but but certainly if you have those types of findings and, and that single leg hop test is is a, a very valuable test, much more so than I find like the fulcrum test and things like that in evaluating stress injuries just from a clinical standpoint. Yeah, agreed. So Steph, you wanted to talk about bone mineral density. Let's talk about oh. that. I'm, I'm curious what your, your postulation you, you were talking about yeah. here. Yeah. Well, we we kind of hypothesized that we would see an association with BMD and BSI given previous literature and, you know, even what we were just discussing in the previous article. And it didn't pop out. And, you know, a few things as we were kind of further exploring this really kind of came to fruition for us. And one is that we actually have a fairly healthy running collegiate population uh, or runners with B in re respect to BMD, we had at just two time points, we had two runners that their BMD Z score went below that 1.0 threshold. And so I think that is this homogenous kind of group of runners where their BMDs weren't really adversely low, probably contributed to the, to the lack of findings from BMD. And 
the other thing that I would just point out is that we did not have BMD specific at the spine, which has particularly been shown to be associated uh, with BSI and, you know, where even the, the last article really pinpointed that the spine value and our BMD measures we pulled from the DEXA were whole body as well as lower leg. And so I think there's room to really fine tune some of those BMD measures. And, and we think that it may just be more of a power issue for us in, in that homogenous population or that, you know, lack of spread in BMD scores as to why that really didn't pop out, even though it was certainly contributing to our multivariable model. But that was certainly a surprising finding for us. I'd be curious if you went to a different institution, you know, not to just tout Wisconsin, but, you know, obviously, you know, there's been, you know, Brian's been there for a long time and there's a lot of emphasis on the running, just the teams there in general and overall health of the athletes. And and that if you took that and you went to a different institution who may not have as much proactive kind of assessments for these athletes in, in kind of maintaining good health, would you find the same kind of, kind of outcome or kind of, kind of results that you did? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we've we've got a lot of a really good relationship with our coaches. And like you say, we've worked with the athletes over the years. We meet with all of them at least once throughout the year, many times in the off season, just to talk about where they're at and review some of their data. So they're they're pretty aware of the, both their mechanics and their their body composition as it relates to their training. So that's a, that's a actually a really good point that I hadn't thought of before is just how familiar our athletes are with this type of data and how that may influence some of some of how they approach their their training as a result of it. I was asking earlier about cadence and and step rate. This is kind of off the topic of the actual study itself, but how useful as someone who's a running biomechanist and and then obviously someone who runs a lot in step would you find that the various wearables are as far as truly assessing cadence? Good question. Um, I'll, I'll take this first stuff if you don't mind, but I'll sure. say that, the, the you know, there's a wide variety of wearables out there, clearly, you know, wrist, wrist worn, some that are chest strap based, some that are foot pod based, even up, up to six years, seven years ago, when they, maybe they weren't as refined as they are now they were still pretty darn accurate. I mean, you know, from a running step rate perspective, you can get within typically, you know, uh, anywhere from two to four steps per minute You'll be your, is where your error zone might be. Now, again, that's using a, a running-based instrument. It's not taking a walking-based instrument and trying to extrapolate it to running or use it for running. That's where your error will definitely be off uh, quite a bit more, even as high as 10 to 15% in those instances. So, I think overall they they can work pretty well. Um, I am cautious to, though to tell people to pick a step rate number and monitor that with your wearable because we we also know that step rate naturally fluctuates during the run. Even if you're running at a generally constant speed and over a general terrain of the same slope, you know your step rate will will ebb and flow upwards of you know two percent, maybe three percent during the run. So we don't want people to fixate and lock in on a particular number and utilize that under all circumstances. But what we're trying to do is say, where is your average? Where's your typical? And decide if that needs to be adjusted potentially if we go the direction of, of gate retraining based on some of these ideas. 
Well, Brian, it, it's great to hear you say that because as a runner who loves her wearables and the data that it presents, I do like to look at my step rate. And, you know, it's interesting that I find it increasing when I do my tempo and kind of faster paced runs. And so that I definitely agree with the fluctuations that you see. But Mark, to your question, you know, I am an N of one. So take <laughs> this with a grain of salt. But I did jump on our treadmill and uh, got my gait test recently in our lab. And my my step rate came out fairly identical to what I see on my wearable watch on a regular basis. So I would personally, as an N of one, trust what I see. Having a daughter who runs on a cross-country team now going in as a sophomore in high school, I know there's a lot of fixation on the numbers with their training. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm a little curious as far as what you guys have found. Do do you think that it actually correlates uh, appropriately? And then with that in turn, with obviously your study and what you found here, Going back to our previous study, do you feel like you have stuff from your study that you can actually generalize this to start saying, hey, we can make some recommendations based on your findings? I think so. I mean, I'm excited to start to utilize some of this information with our athletes. We've we've been doing this a little bit over the past year or so where we will try to flag athletes preseason who have a particular set of, of biomechanical data that we're concerned with in terms of the risk of BSI. And in particular, if they have had a prior BSI or multiple prior BSIs and they show these particular gait characteristics, such as a lower step rate or you know higher peak vertical ground reaction forces, then we really want to make sure that we're at least meeting with the athlete, reviewing some of this information with the athlete, seeing if there are potential ways that we can refine their mechanics to reduce some of those loads without compromising their performance, which can certainly be a bit tricky at this level, but it is absolutely doable and we've done it and we've had good success with it, but we use it on a very specific basis. We try not to make generalizations and say, hey, we want all of our athletes to run at a particular step rate. That makes no sense, (laughs) but we want to make sure we do it on an individualized level. Yeah. And Mark, as you kind of said earlier, research begets more research, right? And so (laughs) I think that this really sets the stage for some really neat ideas in terms of our future RCTs and looking at, you know, re-injury risk. We know history of BSI is so predictive of future BSI. So does some minimal gait retraining inclusive of slight increase in step rate, could that reduce a a re-injury risk in the future? So I think that there's certainly a lot to take from this. But I do need to critique our own research as well, because we do have some limitations and they relate directly to the prior articles that we've been talking about that we weren't able to measure intensity and duration of training for these athletes. That's just not something we capture in our collegiate athletes at this time. And so that would be a very valuable piece to get kind of that athlete exposure data. And we didn't get much, we don't have much information on our female athletes in relation to amenorrhea or female athlete triad, things like that. And again, especially coupled with the findings of the prior article, it'd be really great to be able to incorporate some of that information into our models and our risk factors. And we'll finish with this is just, if we're going to take a, you know, if Brian, if someone comes into you and they have a lower step rate and they're looking to try and increase their step rate. How do you usually approach that with them? Do you just tell them, just turn your Legos over faster or do you give them any sort of kind of tips on how they can work on that practically? Yeah. Yeah. So once we identify maybe a, a target step rate, so what is their typical step rate at, at the speed that they're going to be running at? And then we may bump that up only as, you, as, as the, the study showed, you know, one step per minute change has the potential to have, have some strong effects. 
So it doesn't need to be this major change. We don't have to change them 10% to have a positive. So we'll start with very small changes, two steps, four steps per minute using a metronome to try to drive it. And so they're having this rhythm that they're keying in on and they're just essentially matching their, their foot contacts to that rhythm. Uh, and it, it really is, a, it's trial and error. It's, it's seeing what this feels like. Does the athlete like it? How, how goofy, I've I heard that word every time <laughs> I've tried it, how goofy does their gait feel? Yeah. With the idea that we're not, you're, you're going to feel a bit goofy because it's not your typical, but at the same time, it shouldn't feel so awkward and it shouldn't be harder. It should in the end feel uh, ideally a bit easier. And if, but if it doesn't feel easier, it should at least be confident that it's unloading that area that we're concerned with in terms of injury. Awesome. Fantastic discussion. I'd really like to thank both of my guests today for their time and their insights on another research review episode. Thanks to Drs. Heiderscheidt and Dr. Klee Thermis. We thank you, the listeners also, for your continuing to tune in and support the podcast with your listenership. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and any comments you may have for the podcast and tell your colleagues about us. Check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.